show. The no Mickey show. Yeah, uh huh. We clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs stay fed. Deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion in this melted pot. We live in time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. Continues. The No Mickey Show. Hello and welcome to the Nomiki Show. I am Nomiki Konst. So it seems remarkable, right? Uh, we still have Andrew Cuomo, Governor Andrew Cuomo to kick around. Truly remarkable. But of course, it is totally in keeping with Andrew Cuomo and his years of political power and closeness to power. He is a bully, a harasser, a self-centered narcissist. I don't think these are disputable. But he is also one hell of a stubborn son of a former governor, you know. Most politicians would long since have folded up or crumbled away with these types of scandals. And by the way, there were scandals before these scandals that he rode through, in which many of his closest associates and staffers and friends went to jail, but not Andrew Cuomo. He rides through it. He has been backed into his corner, but he keeps throwing punches. I did nothing wrong and uh, period and I'm not resigning and I'm doing my job every day. I'm not telling anyone to have faith in anything. I didn't tell the assembly to have faith in anything. Uh, everybody makes their own decisions. Now here's the governor just two months ago praising the attorney general. What is determinative is what the attorney general finds. That's the factual finding. Uh, and the attorney general has to do her job, and she's very competent uh, to do that. Survival has become his purpose in life at this point, which is a pretty big problem right now in a state whose purpose right now clearly must be a just and robust recovery from this dreadful pandemic and the economy that has collided with it. Once upon a time, long ago, like last year, Cuomo was so powerful that he could impose his will on most everyone. For years, he single-handedly blocked a progressive rising in the legislature. No one liked him, but everybody feared him. So when he told his staff to help him write a book on state time, you know, a book on the pandemic, they helped. When he told nursing homes to take COVID patients back, they did, despite the risks. When he told his, his health officials to fudge the numbers, to make deaths in nurse, nursing homes look smaller, they did it. Now the chickens have come home to roost, thanks almost entirely to several brave women who challenged the all-powerful Cuomo and, of course, these nursing home scandals, but happened together. Calling out his new nursing home scandals and his disrespect and abuse of women on his staff. The all-powerful Cuomo is no more. Like the all-powerful Oz, the curtain has been pulled back and we can see the real Cuomo. More people, people who bought into his phoniness can see the real Cuomo. For progressives in New York, this is a huge moment. We've known this for a long time and we've been trying our hardest to get the word out. There is a real political vacuum, a power vacuum, as big as we've had in a generation, a lame duck mayor, and a desperate, broken governor trying to cling to power. Two people, two people are the center of the political power structures in New York City and New York State. It's almost painful to watch Mayor de Blasio slowly pull the governor's wings off day after day, announcing pandemic reopening plans without talking to the governor, who has no political choice but to go, go along or even try to one-up the mayor because that's what they do. Honestly, I don't even mind the, the mayor torturing the governor. He has it coming, but this is not a healthy dy dynamic for New Yorkers ever, but especially not with this looming crisis. They are rushing to reopen this economy, even, even as the rate of vaccinations in New York State have plummeted. This is one reason we need to get Cuomo out of office. We need a real governor working with an attentive mayor, making decisions together carefully so we can all have faith in them. Cuomo is hanging on by his political fingertips right now, and Letitia James, the attorney general, 
can settle that matter with her investigations into the governor's pattern of harassment and the money he took for the book. He then had state employees help them help him write. The legislature can speed up their investigations into the nursing nursing home scandal. But we need Governor Cuomo to get gone. Whether he leaves office or not, we as progressives need to move on. And dare I say it, I think we need some female leadership. It would be great to have female progressive leadership, but this is as <laughs> the behaviors coming out of the Cuomo administration from Governor Cuomo himself and how he interacts with the mayor de Blasio and how mayor de Blasio interacts with Governor Cuomo is very male, <laughs> very male. I think some of these dynamics, even the most basic neoliberals would not play into. This is, you know, I don't have to say what kind of contest it is. I think we all know. The time is now to build back what Cuomo has ruined. We need to build an open, vibrant political culture driven by purpose and not fear and intimidation, which is the norm in New York state politics and New York City politics. It is the male driven norm. We can have disagreements. We can even have winners and losers. But New York state should not be ruled by a politics of destruction where dissenters are demonized and destroyed. The day is done and so should be Andrew Cuomo, and his style of po politics needs to be weeded out. We have an excellent show for you today. It is Femme Friday. Oh, and by the way, uh, one of those courageous women is with us. She stood up to Andrew Cuomo and will tell us about that and her campaign for borough president of Manhattan. Lindsay Boylan is in the house. And later we have comedians and activists Francesca Fiorentini and Helen Hong. They're back. So excited. It's Femme Friday. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. I am so excited. I love when my friends come on. This is so much fun. Uh, Lindsay Boylan, candidate for Manhattan Borough President. She previously uh, ran for Congress uh, last cycle against Congressman Jerry Nadler, where she shocked the world. She brought up all the issues that needed to be brought up. She came on our show, especially, you know, and talked about them. But prior to that, she was a deputy secretary for economic development and housing for the state of New York under Andrew Cuomo who is the topic of our opening. <laughs> Hi, Lindsay, how you doing? Nice to see you, Namiki. Nice to see you too. So um, let's just start off with some of the basics because for our audience outside of New York City who may not have followed your congressional race or may not follow the ins and outs of New York City and New York State politics, they probably know who you are now. Uh, if they're not, then I don't know why they're watching our show. <laughs> Uh, you worked in the Cuomo administration, as we mentioned at the top, and you courageously uh, did speak out about how you were treated uh, in the Cuomo administration. And so uh, if you're if you're comfortable doing it um, as, as much as you're willing to and, and able to, I uh, would love to hear what happened to you and what really moved you to come forward, because as we discussed on the show quite a bit, it is takes so much for a woman to be able to even say these things out loud, let alone publicly um, in, 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 in a politically charged environment, uh, especially with someone like Andrew Cuomo, who, who uh, is, likes to retaliate. Let's just say that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're seeing right now uh, that the governor of New York is an abusive person and uh, he abuses his power in every way. and. He has done that over over time with his staff pretty consistently. And, uh, you know, as I've mentioned a, a few times, um, I came forward because I didn't want this to happen to other women and because I didn't want other women to go through what I went through and and because I had the privilege to do something about it, you know, had a platform, had a family who um, is able to support me and uh, you know, this this was someone who was going to be elevated even to higher office and even more authority and even more power. And we can't continue to uh, elevate people who abuse others and abuse their power. And that's what the governor does. What um, what did he do? You know, he he pretty consistently sexually harassed me and many other women. And I've talked about those allegations at length, um, you know, in a few public statements. Uh, was there 
any sort of reaction? Did did uh, we've we've seen that some of his staffers have come out against lawmakers for uh, saying that they stand with you and the other um, women who who have alleged uh, mistreatment and and harassment and and worse. Uh, and we've seen like text messages from from staffers, you know, from of Andrew Cuomo, Melissa Rosa to tell Sandra Biagi. But was there any sort of retaliation once you came forward? You know, I think um, the governor is the kind of person who uses his power in every way to control the message and control people. And uh, he's been consistent here in doing the same. Um, he tries to smear people who come forward um, about him and his abuse, and he tries to isolate people. Unfortunately, I think the extent of what he's done wrong over time has isolated him. And I think it's really embarrassing that there are so many leaders willing to stand with him when so much of his harassment and abuse has been corroborated women and by um, proof, uh, documented proof uh, and, and conversations um, that different women had over uh, the length of the time they, they experienced abuse. So he's got to stand up to all that. And so do the increasingly small number of people who choose to stand alongside him as he faces these very serious and true allegations. What do you think is going on with this dynamic? The people who are defending him that don't work for him, let's just, or don't rely on his power uh, to, to support him. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a group of people out there who are, you know, defending Cuomo all the way. Yeah, yeah, I think, um, there is a certain amount of hero worship of politicians in this country, and I don't think it's healthy, and I don't mm -hmm. think it's good. Um, when I get too much of it, uh, I think, you know, it's important to step back and remind myself and people that I'm um, uh, just another person trying to do something to help. And I think he's a great example of why we should not idolize our leaders, because um, he doesn't deserve it. And, um, you know, the things that I've seen that are, are really in support of him have nothing to do with the truth. They have nothing to do um, with helping New Yorkers. And mm -hmm. it's bad because, um, you know, implicitly he supports this. And it's just another version of abuse. It's, it's, it's someone trying to use whatever tactics he can to uh, intimidate others and you know women are not going to be intimidated we're not going to be intimidated regardless of um how people you know how he intends to try and strike against us i mean we're talking about the most powerful man in the state for a long time uh, a pretty popular national democratic figure and i think a lot of people don't want to admit that mm -hmm. our our leaders can be bad and this is a person who has done a number of really bad things beyond uh, abusing the women who've worked for him. Uh, he's abused his power in this pandemic. He's responsible for the, the, the misinformation at the very least that, uh, you know, had cloaked the number of deaths in this pandemic. And instead of uh, being held accountable for that, he uh, signed a multi-million dollar book deal to benefit himself using the weight of the office office to get that. So um, he's being who he is. And it just shows more of what an unethical uh, monster he is. Mm. Never let a good crisis go to waste, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, spoken like somebody who who believes in neoliberal politics, right? Um, okay, so let's shift gears for a second, because we are in the middle of a crisis. And uh, the city was already uh, in deep crisis before the pandemic. Uh, it had been, you know, I think most people who are working class and, and below are poor and working poor are extremely aware of of the dynamics in New York and how New York has become an incredibly unaffordable and how uh, public services are just barely functional if they are even functional. And it's just not a city that helps that working people can easily. I mean, even upper middle class folks struggle with it. Um, easily survive it. And now we're, we're, we're still in the pandemic, but uh, the eviction moratorium ha just keeps getting extended. 
we don't really have a sense of how bad it is. Some numbers are out, but they really don't have a real sense of how many people have fled the city, uh, how many small businesses are going to shut down. Uh, you know, the subway obviously still doesn't work. Uh, there's just, there's so, NYCHA is in disarray. You're running for Manhattan Borough President. And um, let's start off with just for folks, I mean, including New Yorkers. What is a borough president? First sure. off, how many boroughs are there? What are the boroughs? <laughs> let's do some basics here. Sure, sure, sure. So there's five boroughs. I'm running to represent Manhattan's borough as the borough president. And this job really is all about land use and zoning and community boards. So it's basically, uh, in some respects, kind of like a mayor of Manhattan. It's the person who's responsible for doing every they, everything they can, directing all the tools of um, development and building and uh, livability to make it a better quality of life in this borough. And I think we got a lot of challenges because this is the most, uh, one of the most unequal places in the country. Uh, the borough of Manhattan, we like to think of as a wealthy place, but it's a place full of extremes. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you, we've seen that, as you mentioned in the pandemic, I think people have, are in a depth of pain and struggle and instability. Um, unlike something they've ever seen before. And we had issues of a housing crisis. We had, um, you know, small businesses faltering. Uh, women and minorities were in the worst position before this crisis and uh, have lost footing and grounding in the economy from this. And we need to direct all of the resources we can to change that. And one of the great things about the borough president's job is you can both help set the path for future, um, the future way we want to live in this city. How are we going to get more affordable housing? How are we going to get more supportive housing, more senior housing? How are we going to respond at scale to the climate crisis? And how are we going to undo some of the harms of systemic racism in, in, in design? Because let's not forget that people like Robert Moses, mm -hmm. urban in the same field as myself, designed this city and designed this state um, in a racist, gendered manner. And we have a lot of work to undo, and we're going to be getting a lot of federal aid. So on top of making choices that we would traditionally make around zoning and how we um, create a more livable city and borough, we're going to be getting a lot more incoming in terms of support. And the last thing we need is to have people like uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo um, and mayors like uh, Bill de Blasio, who are ineffective at best, um, you know, make the decisions on their own. So it's the perfect time to have an election. And I'm really excited to win this role so I can help make Manhattan more livable and more sustainable for the future. And that's really the whole crux of the job is how to use every tool to make it more equitable in this borough and more livable and help it recover from this crisis, but not to go back to some um, pre-pandemic reality where so many were still struggling. What does a borough president do? Like, what, what are the powers that the borough president's office has? You mentioned community boards. Um, can you explain what a community board is for folks? But, but specifically, like, they're not part of the city council, they're not passing legislation, but what can a borough president actually do? The borough president can offer up legislation, even though they're not in the city council, but I think it's more um, basic than that. So mm -hmm. by appointing these community boards, which are essentially our local functioning, our most local functioning version of city government in many ways, through um, non-paid but appointed positions, you're basically empowering people to make decisions related to um, development related to, um, you know, community engagement with local schools, everything, including liquor licenses for restaurants. Mm -hmm. It's the basic environment, the community boards that fosters how we succeed in the borough as a whole. And I think for far too long, community board members have had to think of themselves as reporting to city council members, reporting to city mm -hmm. hall. And I think that's a lot of what's backwards with our politics, even in the Democratic Party, because we need people who know that when, I, when they get appointed through um, the borough president's office by me, 
I'm empowering them to serve their communities, not to serve me. And if anything, we should be uniting around all kinds of decisions at the local level, community board level, mm -hmm. that reinforce open streets, that makes this a more bike and pedestrian friendly city, that supports public parks, that helps small businesses stay alive and actually mm -hmm. recover. And you can do that through these community board appointments. Now, the, the borough president also has uh, an appointment to the public education, uh, basically the school board of the city. Uh, the borough president makes other really important appointments like the community education councils. The borough president has around $100 million to support mm -hmm. uh, capital efforts within the borough. And that's a really big deal, especially in this economic crisis to help recovery. Uh, and then the, the borough president uh, gets to weigh in on you know major land use decisions, major zoning changes. And I think uh, for far too long, we've either been silent uh, or not listening enough to our communities. For example, we 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 have to close Rikers Island, but we don't need new borough jails to do that. Um, we have to direct and use the platform. You know, the other big piece is this bully pulpit to influence a city council and and city government and be the one person who isn't concerned with a particular uh, area of Manhattan, mm -hmm. for example, but has to. Uh, help direct agencies to work together to help everyone. And I think that's one of the things that's really been missing, particularly with responding to the climate crisis. You have the Department of Transportation or the Department of Parks and all of these different agents working in silos. And it ends up having a huge impact on the kinds of plans we develop and, and how it affects communities, whether you're living in Brook houses in NYCHA or you're just living on the Lower East Side in an affordable housing unit. How are you getting to weigh in on the major decisions that affect how your community is going to look? And and even things like weighing on refusing to privatize NYCHA uh, and find other ways to to see the forward. Because in effect, RAD and, and privatization means that we're not going to have public housing for the future. And this is at a time where we actually need to be expanding and supporting our housing um, options for people uh, instead of creating a lack of stability, which is what we're doing now in pretty much every way. Even when you mentioned um, these piecemeal extensions of the eviction moratorium, what it does is create fear and instability and a lack of ability to plan around that um, in part, which is you know, a big reason why people aren't able to make decisions that benefit their families. I mean, Lindsay, this all sounds great, but like everyone knows that New York City is so progressive and that every single city council member and everybody who's elected in Manhattan, they're just a bunch of left and everywhere else. They're left wingers. And so I don't know what you're talking about, but uh, it's a utopia. Uh, no one rules New York City. I don't know what you're saying. So who are the who are the industries that are influencing all of our supposed uh, left wing lawmakers and city council? <laughs> Real estate, uh, uh, the real estate industry is behind <laughs> how we approach vision. I mean, look at yeah. the governor's intentions for the Penn Station complex to basically benefit Vornado. Uh, look at which is all, a, a developer for folks who don't yeah, know. Plans that are made, they're big plans made to benefit big real estate. And uh, what ends up happening is New Yorkers, everyday New Yorkers lose out. I mean, the, the idea that we're going to get enough affordable housing purely through mandatory inclusionary housing, which basically just bakes into the cake of development um, inequality in terms of the percentage of, of luxury to affordable that we're creating. We're never can, we, can we clarify that? So folks might know about this thing called the Pordor. Yep. Uh, basically, if, if, I, if I may when a, a new uh, apartment complex is built, you know, usually they're glass and they're like, you know, in, in, in some area that's been rezoned for them. Uh, they, the way that they're able to get away with it is they offer housing with a different door, affordable housing, which by the way, not so affordable when you actually look it up. It's, it's in any other, most cities in America, you'd be like, there's nothing affordable about this, but comparatively, yeah. Uh, it's it's and, and there's a lottery system that people can qualify for to uh, receive this housing that basically working people are looking. And, yeah. and to your point, you know, there there have been various um, programs and schemes to try and enable basically luxury development and yeah. put a nice window dressing on it of a small percentage of affordable housing. And in many cases, 
the number of units is so small, they're um, far inferior by comparison to the rest of the building, to your point. Uh, and most people can't afford them still or can't qualify for the small number of units that are available. And this, this, this problem goes well beyond the whole policy of mandatory inclusionary housing, which is basically, we'll let you develop luxury if you do a little bit of affordable housing. Um, you know, we now have a senior housing crisis and one of the determinants of poverty in this city is if you're a senior citizen. I mean, that's just what a what a terrible um, society to live in, that a determinant of poverty is are you a senior woman predominantly? And we're not creating enough senior housing. We have a bottleneck in affordable housing now. We can't onboard more families to opportunities for affordable housing or access to public housing because we haven't even produced enough senior quality senior housing for the, the, the community that we have. And we've, we're just failing universally in, in every way. And, you know, we talk about this being such a progressive city. Well, the supposed progressive mayor who was all, all about a tale of two cities and affordable housing didn't realize that in any way, shape or form, because he was largely co-opted by the real estate community. So and, and told that the only way that you can get affordable housing is by building more luxury developments. Yes. Yeah. He, he bought into the scheme. So um, how does this change neighborhood? I mean, Manhattan in particular is just like the perfect icon for how real estate has just transformed. Uh, I mean, I barely know anybody who lives in Manhattan. I live in Queens. I used to live in Lower East Side. And Lower East Side, when I lived there, was like, <laughs> not quite there yet. <laughs> not quite there yet. Um, and I say that because that's, I mean, that was 10 years ago and, and, and the city has just transformed so quickly. Yes. So when, when we say, when they're able to build these, and Lori's is a perfect example, actually, in terms of, of, of these like glass towers that have just, you know, been born overnight. I mean, I, I go down there like every six months or so, not that often. And then when I drive down, I'm like, I don't literally recognize this block. I lived here. I walked here every day. I don't recognize this block. I don't know where to turn. It is a completely different neighborhood. And my question is like, so if you are living in public housing, which PS people are paying to live in, it's not like it's free housing. A lot of people somehow believe that you're paying market. Well, market public housing rates, which are lower, but by no, and, 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 and completely like, you, you know, inhabitable in some, some instances, um, underfunded, starved of resources, and they're still paying, you know, rent, like real rent for, for this, for public housing. So you live in a community and suddenly all these high rises pop up and maybe they have, uh, these inclusionary practices where they have some affordable housing in, in the high rises, but what is the, how does the community change? How do small businesses change? How does the architecture, the community, can people survive in, in these neighborhoods once these high rises pop up? I think that's what we're, what is, what people are struggling with right now. I mean, I, uh, it's no surprise to me that one of the most activist communities that I've encountered and gotten a chance to know are uh, leaders from organizations like Grand Street Dems on the Lower East Side, because people are, you. yeah, I mean, people are frustrated with the decisions that their elected leaders are making on their behalf, whether it be, you know, to um, completely destroy and obliterate um, East River Park, how to stage uh, resilience work on the waterfront to do it that benefits um, Baruch houses, residents, for example. Um, and and all the decisions that are being made are really being done, made in a silo that doesn't benefit people. And they are seeing huge luxury developments go up overnight without the same public benefit around them. I mean, without the the benefits of, you know, significant improvements to public transit. In fact, mm -hmm. what a lot of people end up seeing is that their neighborhoods are more congested, but um, the Department of Transportation hasn't necessarily taken the time to think through issues of livability. Um, their parks are impacted, but uh, a broader sense of how to respond to that, that mm -hmm. respects people's need for green space is not accounted for. Um, and the places people have been shopping for decades, um, the community organizations that they've been relying upon are struggling. And that is, I think, one of the big reasons why when we approach zoning changes, more significant land use changes, we should be doing it um, in a much more uh, 
responsive way, way that's felt from the community. I mean, I think one of the things that I found most inspiring is something like the Chinatown Working Group, which is mm -hmm. a community-based coalition of folks who have said, we know we need to get more affordable housing. We don't agree with the way that land use decisions have been made basically to largely inspire hotel development at the, at the, you know, at the, you know, hurting at the same time housing development. So there are many people, many good people who know that our neighborhoods need to accommodate newcomers and need to accommodate more seniors and, and um, supportive housing and say, no, doing it at the direction of significant developers and putting the onus and hoping that the developers do the right things in these significant rezoning processes isn't enough. We need to have community-driven planning around how to get more out of, get more affordable housing of our communities. And it, even if it's not the most you know, economically beneficial for a, one significant property owner, that's not how we should approach these things. We should approach them with our goals in mind, which is how to get affordable housing, how to make more livable communities, how to avoid displacing communities, particularly communities of color that have been um, existing in parts of our city for, you know, decades and if not hundreds of years. So on that note, um, how does this rezoning happen? Because I feel like the, the crux of some of the, the, the real estate like crises that are happening in the city are happening when people who are seemingly progressive on many issues, yeah. most issues, suddenly Oh, I spy rezoning and they, they help to prove it and they help. Who, who, who decides, how does that work? I think folks outside of New York or in New York, I should say, have no concept of how suddenly uh, apartments are able to be built around their neighborhood that weren't zoned that way, you know, a few months prior. Well, a lot of, a lot of times this is study areas um, cited for rezoning are defined around significant property owners. So literally defined to have um, significant holdings within the study area for rezoning that would benefit a big developer. So the onus is truly on ways um, and the interest is driven towards how to get and incentivize big developers to do things that include affordable housing. But in many ways, uh, I think the whole logic of that is flawed because we're not approaching these decisions with how to minimize communities' livability yeah. uh, getting more affordable housing. And I think there are a lot of really powerful forces that have aligned um, to make the narrative such that th this particular way to approach rezoning that gives, let's say, Edison Properties, which owns all of those parking structures, you know about an incentive to do their luxury development and include some affordable housing as if that's the answer, like that's the panacea, that's the way that we get to more affordable housing. When in reality, we should be approaching these from a much larger context. And it is true that every community should be doing its Fair share to get more affordable housing, and that um, all too often in development, it's lower-income communities of color that have development happen to them. They're not truly a part of the process, and and for too many of these planning uh, processes, uh, it's a foregone conclusion uh, of of what the study area is. And if you're powerful enough, like I would say, um, City Council Speaker Corey Johnson has been to omit key areas of his district for rezoning. Um, I think in this latest contemplation of Soho NoHo, you know, it's, you end, um, it's you end up in Manhattan. Yeah, and you end mm -hmm. up having an area that's that has a very specific carved out purpose to benefit developers instead of the community. And I think that that is the fallacy. We basically have a city where the most powerful, uh, more powerful than most of our politicians uh, is to benefit big real estate and to incentivize them to do the right thing in terms of affordable housing without, without, without enough teeth, without enough public benefit for the things that they build. Um, I mean, I think you just look, like you said, on the Lower East Side, on the waterfront, you know, the Two Bridges area. Um, if you look at the way that development has taken hold, it really much more benefits private interest than it does people. And, and you see that at the ground level, you see that in the way that people have had to um, change their life patterns based on a lack of 
um, you know, uh, livability in their communities. And I think that you see, I think that's why there's some confusion and some tension right now in our progressive communities, because um, it is true that we need a lot more affordable housing and supportive housing and deeply affordable housing. Um, but that's the goal. The goal isn't to have more luxury developments. And if there was ever a time to not develop any luxury, there was ever a time not to do the pen complex that gets us massive glass, you know, commercial towers um, as a byproduct of trying to do important, you know, um, renovation and development work at Penn Station. It's now we don't need these uh, commercial uh, yeah. residential luxury towel towers. We don't need them. We don't want them. We want um, real affordable housing and and uh, many ways to approach getting that to our people. Not to mention, side note, when these big towers are built, one in three, I don't know what the latest number is, it's, I don't know, this is a couple of years ago, yeah. are being purchased as like offshore bank accounts for, yeah. for foreign oligarchs yeah. who, who do want to take their money out and just place in real estate. So they're they're getting ta they're not paying taxes on it. They're, and this is thank you, Michael Bloomberg, for just completely incentivizing this program. They're transforming our neighbor neighborhoods. They're incentivizing the developers. And even the rich people that live in New York are ticked because they're paying taxes on their real estate. And the yes. rich people are saying, you random oligarch who may have some sort of shady background or not, uh, are, are making my my property more exp i mean it, it's it's insane it, it, this is the incentivized program here is absolutely bonkers but lindsay i we could talk about this forever this is obviously <laughs> well it's of new york and it's important so uh lindsay boylan love love you uh sister when's election day it's coming up june 22nd so we've got a few weeks away we need all the help we can get and all the support we can get we're gonna win this and this is ranked choice voting. It's the first time this has ever happened. So how does that work briefly? <laughs> well, everyone's got to vote number one. Uh, just kidding. Well, I would like that. And, you know, this gives you an opportunity to support more than one person. So let's say you like one of the other candidates. Uh, there are three male electeds in the race. Um, you can, you know, support them two, three, and four. And that means we won't have costly runoffs. Uh, we'll have candidates winning that have the full support of our community. So it's a good thing for democracy. Mm -hmm. And it's a good thing that we don't need to spend $15 million on public advocate runoffs or some other race runoffs again. Gee, what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> Lindsay Boylan, uh, thank you so much for, for joining us. Hope to have you back on soon after you've won. We can talk more real estate. I feel like we just started to talk. Yeah. I know. We can do five minutes up. Let's talk about real estate for 25 minutes. Way more interesting. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Lindsay. Take care. All right. You've heard me discuss this. Sunset Lake CBD is no joke. I do not. Uh, push products, pedal products that I do not use or love, despite the fact that some people are like, do you really use it? I was like, yes, I was just randomly talking about it. I posted a video of theirs today. I was like, I, this is not, they're not paying me to do this. This is just me. Uh, Sunset Lake CBD is a farmer owned company that ships ships craft CBD products directly from their farm in Vermont to your door. Sunset Lake CBD has something for everyone. They offer tinctures and gummies and salves and coffee and fudge and dog biscuits now that you can also eat as a human <clears throat> Sam Cedar, and they're designed to help with stress, aches, and pains. They're originally from a dairy farm in Vermont. It was a Ben and Jerry's dairy farm that they turned into a premium hemp farm. They are, if when you purchase their products, you are supporting sustainable agriculture. It enhances the communities um, that they're in and the economies that they're in. This is a, these are rural economies. Obviously, the government's not putting enough resources in, so this is a great way to help those communities out. And it creates meaningful employment and they pay their minimum wage is $15 an hour, but also the employees own the majority of the company and to top it off, because they're good progressives, they support progressive independent media like the David Pakman show and the Majority Report and our show, you know, you know how it rolls. Um, I, my little story this day about Sunset Lake CBD is I was in this island called Vieques this weekend filming our part of our documentary. We're in Puerto Rico. I went to sleep. I woke up. And there's a lot of mosquitoes there and they're very strong mosquitoes and everybody was full of mosquito bites and I was too, but I looked at my leg and I was like, I don't think that's a mosquito bite. 
I don't know what that is, but it looks like a, like, forgive me, a little bit of a tumor on my leg, on my lower leg. And then I was walking, I was like, I don't know, just, I ignore it. Cause I'm, that's the kind of person I am. Like, <laughs> it was out of, and I was with a bunch of guys and we're just like, oh, it's a mosquito bite. I was like, I'm listening to them. They live here. Sure. It's a mosquito bite. And then I'm sitting at breakfast. This is so gross. I'm sorry, guys. This is like way too much. I'm at breakfast and I'm like, oh, it really hurts. Like it really, really hurts. I'm grabbing right now. And then suddenly I feel like my leg is all wet and the, the, the tumor mosquito bite had burst because I was walking. Okay. I'm getting to a story here. I promise. <laughs> Doris, you're ready to kill me. It's so gross. I, if I could lift my leg up and show you, you'd be like, get that off the camera. So I was like, how am I, this hurts so much. What can I, I was like, oh, I have my Sunset Lake CBD slash Arnica. I didn't put it in the wound. I put it like around it, which is actually really helpful because it, I don't, I don't know what, what got me. It was like some sort of chupacabra thing that like attacked my leg, but I also put on my mosquito bites. That's actually what I should have just said. I just said I put on my mosquito bites, not that. And it helped tremendously. Dorsey, how is it curing your ailments today? <laughs> oh my God. I don't even I don't even know what to say. Uh, I'm like yeah, a 95 like, year old. Here's I my had a ailment. headache yesterday and I took the gummies. I feel great, but you know, there was no nothing growing in me or anything. <laughs> it's so disgusting. You always have the longest. Um, yeah, Great advertisement for yeah, And uh, I'm out of the coffee, so I gotta get some more of that. But yeah, my uh, my partner loves the coffee. And uh, she drinks it up real quick because, you know, it just, uh, she drinks a lot of coffee. And I think it's like nice for her to have some coffee that kind of chills her out at the same time, you know, keeping her alert and all the stuff that she's working on. But yeah, I stick to the, the gummies and the tincture. So uh, yeah, next time I, I have a chupacabra problem. But it was a solve, not a tincture. I said, as a tincture, I put the solve on. Yeah, no, no, no but I'll, next time I'll try, I'll try the solve next time. Like when I, when I have something... Yeah. Mosquito bites, it helps. I, yeah. I have one right here that I'm itching right now. It's really good. Um, yeah, so you too. <laughs> Next time you're in Vegas and get attacked by something in the middle of the night. And Chad's like, where is, I, I think I know where Nomi is now. I don't know. Yeah. No, I'm not. I mean, I'm in San Juan now. I'm, now I'm in Puerto it's, Rico. It's, it's yeah. <laughs> um, but seriously, it's, it's, I've, I've, could not recommend the products more. We said that we're against Bodega CBD because it was a scam and it was way more expensive. Um, and with our discount, if you go to sunsetlakecbd.com and type in Nomi, N-O-M-I, you get 20% off of your entire order. All you have to do is go to sunsetlakecbd.com, type in Nomi, N-O-M-I, and you get 20% off. Check out the dog biscuits. You can eat them if you like them too. Um, simple as that. All right, we got a panel. We got a fun Femme Friday panel. I'm so excited. They're back. Let's make this happen. Helen Hong is here and Francesca Fiorentini. Francesca is the host of the Vituation Room podcast, which she films on Sundays. And she was over at Newsbroke on Al Jazeera uh, doing such incredible work. She has covered the U.S.-Mexico uh, border and did that great uh, documentary on MSNBC about Medicare for All, friend of the show. <laughs> and Helen Hong, with her Medicare for All shirt, how perfect, is the host of the Job Sleep podcast and the Go Fat Yourself podcast. And wait, tell us again. I know you've told the story over and over, but like, please tell us about your new thing, your new project, which we love so much. Um, I'm. I have a YouTube channel with my dad. Yes. Who so is an extremely charming 76-year-old Korean immigrant. And it's on YouTube. It's called Old Korean Dad Stories and sometimes Mom. Because <laughs> Mom's got to get in there. Mom's a little bit more camera shy. That's why it's not Old Korean Mom and Dad Stories. But <laughs> yeah. Dad loves being in front of the camera. <laughs> so, <laughs> you just, get it from him, Helen. I get it. I totally get it from him. Dad's always like pushing me out of the frame. <laughs> <laughs> hog, the, hog the camera himself. But he's super charming. And I, I launched this channel in response to the anti-Asian attacks that have been happening for elders because... You know, my parents are tiny and small. Oh, yes, there it is. Yeah. I love that photo at the top. It's so great. Like, your mom looks, I'm sorry. Oh, Dorsey just subscribed. But your mom, she looks like she's the charmer there. Wow. Look yeah. at how good looking so your good parents looking. are. Oh, my, my parents God. are fat. 
They're both snacks. They're absolutely <laughs> snacks. My God. Yeah, they're like, like, they're like our, their wedding photo. My sister and I are always bitching, like, how are they supermodels in their wedding photo? And we look like we look like what? What the hell happened? Like, not Raised in America. That's why. Yeah, totally. Like McDonald's like and Tang exactly. and whatever's in our water. Who knows? Exactly. So they're like super hotties and they're in their 70s and they're spry and they're funny and charming. And, um, I interview them about like, you know, just stuff like their lives. Like they have incredible stories. My dad has incredible stories of surviving the Korean war and they're just charming, funny, interesting people. So that's them. Old Korean dad stories on YouTube. Love this. That's what we need. I'm going to, I'm going to start a channel of my mom describing, uh, viral videos to me. (laughs) Like, with, oh, oh, did you see the one with the bear? And like at the end, I'm like, I'm pretty sure you're just describing the movie The Bear. And I and I think it's all fake. That's staged. Mom. Like, oh, oh, like, dude, this is why we got to get our pa- parents off of Facebook, man. They are so susceptible. They're boomers so- are the most susceptible. Boomers are suckers. I'm not going to lie. Oh, suckers. my God. Yeah. Total suckers. suckers. My mom describes memes from like, Five years ago when memes came out you just not sharing it because that's that's another thing that boomers do is they share old no, you got to describe it on the phone <laughs> of course of course that's how memes about. work yeah you know there's three people and one woman's looking back and, the, and there's a guy who's looking the other way and i'm like but which one mom and the one i'm like no it's being used for everything <laughs> my dad will tell me a 20 minute joke and it'll just go on and on and on. And then at the end, he'll be like, and there was a chair. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I don't even understand a word you said. And why did this take 20 minutes to tell? Amazing. That's the funny cute. part. You know, it's the cute. journey. It's the journey. We appreciate them. All right. So we have some stuff we have to talk about, guys, like very serious stuff. Like Liz Cheney is being kicked out of the Republican Party leadership. And Morning Joe's got a lot of feelings about it, but so does Meghan McCain. So we're going to cover both of them. Let's play Morning Joe's response to um, the the vice vice, former vice. I don't know. Coming up with some the former the, the, the daughter of the heart, the, literally the heartless man who sent our country into wars. <laughs> If you talk to people behind the scenes, she is going to be pushed out of that job as leadership chair in the Republican Party because she made the statement again that the election of 2020 was not stolen. Well, you know, Mika, it's sort of the Obi-Wan Kenobi principle. Strike her down and she'll only become stronger. Yeah. Darth, I mean, here you have the Wall Street Journal uh, yesterday in a scathing editorial uh, that we're going uh, to be reading in a little bit. Uh, saying GOP leaders should not have to lie about 2020 to keep their jobs. Well, let's read it now. I I, mean, they they write in part this. Republicans will look foolish or worse to swing voters if they refight 2020 in 2022. They can truthfully say that Democrats used lawsuits to exploit the pandemic to change the election rules in some states. They can also say Democratic judges so on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court <laughs> let Democrats get away with it. Democrats did a better job of exploiting the pandemic election rules than the GOP. So but meta. there's no evidence any of this was de- decisive. As Mr. Trump lost the popular vote in a rout and the Electoral College by a similar margin to what he won in 2016. Mr. Trump lost even as Republicans gained 12 seats in the House. The election was close, but not as close as others in American history. Okay, Republicans okay, should okay. Find- <laughs> I, I have to stop. There's so much here that's ridiculous. On one hand, they're like delusional in that they don't understand we don't control legislatures. We lost all these seats, Democrats meaning, we lost all these seats in the election. Um, like, and, and then the fact that like these, there's 200 plus voter restrictive laws. Uh, first of all, MSNBC, why are you quoting Wall Street Journal? Yeah, why? You know why? Like what, let's pull that, like instead of pulling from the nation. But then literally yesterday, Florida, Texas, just assault on voting. And then just in the beginning of this, they're like, oh, the Democrats exploited the situation for voting rights. And then at the end, they're like, but by the way, Republicans won everything, which is... <laughs> I, I, as a stand-up comedian, I can tell you, people like conservatives have no sense of irony. They have oh zero God. irony. They're like, yeah, uh, the, I mean, they, they cheat. 
it's it's crazy and it's like what you guys you guys don't even see like i it's just it's so it's why there are no right-wing stand-up comics it's why they all suck because they're just like no 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 i am actually racist can i just do a voice (laughs) um yeah are there any women do you know of any like right-wing women comics oh cat timph cat timph she's on that show the gutfeld show I, oh, I'm going to argue, I'm going to argue that Ann Coulter is very funny, but not in like, not intentionally, probably. Absolutely. So, yeah. No, that, I mean, no, Miki, you're right. Like that was like such a, like a, just a layered cake of crap that we have to sift through. Why the hell is MSNBC putting up a Wall Street Journal opinion um, like editorial board, you know, uh, whatever op-ed that's like, actually the democrats exploited the pandemic for voting rights like what are you talking about you mean they made it safe to vote so there's that that's ridiculous the second thing is that liz cheney's in favor of all of these new uh laws that make it harder to vote coming out of 2020. she's completely on board with them so like the weird defense of cheney is also just so unfounded and ridiculous and thirdly no she's not going to become more powerful if they push her out of leadership i'm sorry she's not it's it's fascinating to see this but like i think that the the crazy side of the gop is winning out and unless you know moderate republicans and moderate so-called moderate uh uh, democrats come together and form a new party which is really my hope (laughs) i don't know how we're getting out of this i also as a rabid fan of star wars i am so offended (laughs) that they're calling liz cheney uh, anything related to Star, like, get, get, especially get, not Obi Wan. My like, father please. was Darth Vader. We all don't, knew that. Exactly. Like, don't even say you're not even allowed to speak his name. Like Obi Wan's name. I'm sorry. Get Obi Wan's name out of your dirty, dirty mouth. <laughs> well, okay. One more thing I find that no one's really discussing. Both Liz, uh, Elizabeth Stefaniak, I, 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 I've met her multiple times. I, I ref, I'm so grossed out by this woman. So I'm like, she's not in my head. She's not in my head. Stefaniak, li, whatever her name is. That's really bad. And that's actually very sexist of me. But like, I really don't like her. So I'm trying not to like let her stick because they're forcing it down our throats. <laughs> but this is ultimately it. They're, they're, they're gender depressed. Like, oh, Liz Cheney, woman leadership. Oh, we don't like her. No, he literally Scarborough used words, knock her down. I'm like, and then replace her with Stephaniak, just another woman who's like the AOC of the, or no, that's Melly Talkies. They're fighting people to 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 be like the off AOC. I, there's just the, their relationship with gender is, I mean, ours isn't much better on on the Democratic side, but there's also that aspect of it. Anyways, oh, absolutely. Uh, let's play. Let's play Megan McCain's response. Because Megan O'Brien has a lot of feelings about Liz Cheney. Interesting. Really fascinating, actually. Well, let's cut the crap. He wasn't caught on a hot mic. I think anyone in politics knows that that was done intentionally. And what's going on is Liz Cheney was already, by the way, voted in January to stay in her position and overwhelmingly had support to stay when they tried to oust her before. And what's happening is it's very clear, and I'm going to be a little crass, they're shiving her for her going on television multiple times and saying that the election wasn't stolen and for refusing to debase herself to Cheeto Jesus. I don't understand what's going on. I have spent the past five years of my life trying to accept, understand, and include the MAGA base of this party. And the message that's being sent by the highest uh, member of Republicans in Congress is that women like me and Liz Cheney, who refuse to bend the knee to President Trump, but still remain loyal Republicans, we don't have a place in this party. We are worthless. We are not worth fighting for to keep. And I think... It is Kafkaesque to try and spin this in a way that this is about anything else but her not supporting President Trump. And the leadership in the party is doubling down that Trump is the future. Now, what happened when we doubled down that Trump is the future? We lost four, count them, four Senate seats in the last election in red states, including in my home state of Arizona. We lost a giant election spectacularly. Midterms are coming up, and President Biden is expanding the government in a way that is the largest since LBJ. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and that's bad. I'm sorry. I go like, what's what's her thought? Like, oh my god, and they're providing paid family leave, which she and, agrees like, with what? now. By the way, that's her thing now. 
because she has a baby. She was like, oh, I get it. I get yeah. you finally like, oh my God, it happened to me. So now it's legit. Now it's right. legit. Fair Although, to- can we just give it up for Cheeto Jesus just for a second? <laughs> like, good. I know we're about to slag off on her and deservedly so, but Cheeto Jesus, I mean, that's inspired. Like, I've that's never like Jesus, that you know, if you put it together. Yes. yes. It's like China, I- China and Jesus. Jesus. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jesus. I have I have used Orange Adolf. I have used Orange Joffrey. I've used Tangerine Nazi. Like, I've, I've used a lot of these things. But Cheeto Jesus, that's pretty inspired. I have not thought of that one. That's pretty good. Slow as clap. It's a, it's a, it's a, she, she's freaking out because the cult is, is coming with their guillotines and the, it's not like they were ever the majority. Here's the thing. These women or the neocons that the women of the neocon movement who many of us could identify, right. Who, you know, crusaded into the Iraq war. It's not like Megan McCain was ever a Cheney person either. Like there's that dynamic too, even that little split in the neocon world. But they were never the majority. They just had total control over the crazies. And now right. the crazies have another leader who who is also fully dancing with these folks. It's, it's I don't know. I mean, I, I used an analogy yesterday. I said, this is Ronald, the ghost of Ronald Reagan haunts the Republican Party, but the figurative ghost of, of Donald Trump now controls the party. Absolutely. I mean, look, I in my heart of hearts, I do want the Republican Party to be better. And I've never been that person. I've never been. a. We just need a better Republican. I think after January 6th, things changed. And what's frustrating to me is even to see the way that mainstream outlets and and even us sometimes folk over focus on January 20th because excuse me, over focus on the 2020 election, because that's really where Republicans want to focus when the focus should be January 6th and what the F happened there and continued accountability. You know, there was this great interview, I think in the American Prospect, or no, made the New Republic with Sheldon Whitehouse, right? Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. And he said, basically, the unchecked Bush administration, the, the lack of accountability that the Obama administration was able to bring against the crimes of the Bush administration, including uh, Megan's dad, right, meant that the Republican Party became even further and further and further radicalized. This is what they reaped, right? So now they're sowing it. So he here we are. And what we have to do is actually hold them accountable. It's not about, I made space for you to come into my little world in my little, like, you know, tough it, you know, according to like Megan McCain. It's like, you know, you have to hold them accountable. You, you know, you can't just like, but I made space for you. They don't care. They've got their own space, honey. Like, so it is disingenuous to say that all this lead up has not created the party that we're seeing now. And now it's how do you put the genie back in the bottle? And I'm not sure if you can. It's interesting you say that, like in Arizona in particular, it's so fascinating you say that. She complains about Arizona. Arizona is where the Tea Party really blossomed, which um, uh, resulted in, uh, they're disputing the election results still in Arizona right now, legally. That is her state. And her response is Democrats won. Democrats, let's start with the fact your father nurtured the maverickness of Arizona and those people got captured into this other form of maverick called the tea party so like maybe this is a little personal for you and you don't know how to handle it maybe that has something to do with it (laughs) i 100 percent agree with everything y'all said francesca especially january 6th like the fact that there are sitting legislators in the government right now that have never been held accountable for fomenting and encouraging a literal armed riot coming into Congress, the Capitol building, Mm -hmm. looking to harm and possibly murder sitting lawmakers. The fact that they haven't said squat about that and didn't nip that in the bud. Hey, this is like the fire is on your doorstep. The flaming poop is on your doorstep. (laughs) You did nothing when the fire started. Did nothing when the fire started. And meanwhile, they're still going. They're still, I mean, what's so interesting is this dynamic with um, with Marjorie Taylor Greene and uh, Lauren Boebert and how it's just two of them. It's just two women. And then, and then Matt Gates was sort of like, you know, extension of that. They're actually like falling apart within Congress, yet they're acting like they're in total control yep. because they're not talking to Congress. They're not playing the games of Nancy Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy. They're talking to the outside and their movement outside to raise money. And Kevin McCarthy has completely 
the way that Nancy Pelosi complains that the squad is like trying to control the narrative, Kevin McCarthy took the knee to these two women essentially and Matt Gates and like pretty much that's it. That's it. It's Lauren Boebert and, and Marjorie Taylor Greene. And that I think is fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I I know we don't have that much time, but I know I think it's still shaking down. What was interesting, I covered the, uh, this last or on Sunday on my show was the way that Liz Cheney is actually raising a lot of money, yeah. raising a lot of money from dark money groups that actually are are supported by um, people like Lindsey Graham. Right. Actually, people like Kevin McCarthy. Right there. So there is. I think there might be a say one thing, do another when it comes to the GOP, because once again, they don't know how to get around Trump as the leader, but they sure as hell want a plan because they know he's crazy. I think they secretly know he's crazy. They just don't have the backbone. They don't have the bravery to stand up and actually confront him. Um, So it's it's yet unwritten. I'm fascinated. I just definitely don't shed a lot of tears for someone like Liz Cheney, you know, being put on the back burner. Mm-hmm. Do you guys think that my guess is that she's the vice presidential? Not, I mean, who knows? In like three years, it's it's the whole world can change. Um, but you know, who knows who their nominee could be? It could be Tucker Carlson, for all we know. Who knows? <laughs> but like, what what better way to unify than have a Tucker Cheney? Uh, and and let's just be clear, they come from the same background. It's not like Tucker Carlson didn't rise through the ranks of the the Cheney universe. No, oh, Miki. I don't. I don't know if you're trying to make me barf right now. But yeah, I'm that's my goal. Real queasy <laughs> after you just said those two names together on one ticket. <laughs> but I'm it wouldn't. Ha- I mean, it, it wouldn't happen. Interestingly, I mean, and 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 they wouldn't win. Actually, I think. I mean, to me, if they were smart, if the Republicans were smart, they would nominate Nikki Haley, yeah. right? Someone who's like Trumpy, but like, you know, sort of left him aside a little bit. A woman, of course, because again, with the bad faith feminism, um, you know, the Republicans have that on lock. And so they'll utilize that even worse than Democrats will. But they're again, they have to get around Trump and they have to get around the fact that Newsmax just admitted that, yes, Dominion had nothing to do with any kind of election fraud. And absolutely, Biden won the election. I mean, it's just like just now, (laughs) just now, today. How many times are we going to go over this? And I do think they might be shedding some voters. And I also think you look again, I think there's been a narrative of. Republicans are going to retake the House no matter what. Republicans are going to retake the House no matter what. I wouldn't be so sure. And if Democrats are smart enough to keep on talking about January 6th, they might not. Because once again, I think they did shed a lot of voters because of what happened on the 6th and because of the months and months and months of denialism about what even Republican voters could see was a loss for them. So, like, I don't know. I just don't want to be fatalistic. I hate when we get into the like, well, it always ping pongs anyway. You know, like we have to fight for this. I completely agree with you, Francesca, about like we need to double down on January 6th because like more and more. I can't believe how much footage just new footage from that day keeps coming out. And it's just shocking. I mean, the foot every new piece of footage that I see is like, oh, my God, this was a real violent insurrection. Like people were really trying to kill people in there. My God, is that my sixth grade teacher? (laughs) What the hell? (laughs) <laughs> very, I was of Arizona, the guy with the horns. I was like, I think I know that guy. <laughs> I think I went to preschool with him. <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty much it. We definitely um, made out in Burning Man. It was embarrassing. We don't talk about it. <laughs> it was, it was the mushrooms, guys. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> everyone, I saw everyone's humanness. They were so. Listen, what happens at Burning Man stays at Burning Man. We all know this. Absolutely, <laughs> mostly dubstep. <laughs> Ladies, oh my God, I still have so much I want to talk about. Um, Francesca Friantini, Helen Hong, I have to go because I have to go downstairs to go interview a badass female journalist from Puerto Rico. So Woo. give me a second. I, I I love you all. I would love for these conversations to go longer. So hopefully you'll come back very soon. This was so much fun. I've made it finally. Thank you, <laughs> Nomiki. Thank you, Helen. <laughs> Francesca, not like any of I've been dying to be on panel with you for like, I know, I know. like the third time. I'm like, Francesca, is Can it we me? All each other? Is it me? <laughs> it's so good to see you. Happy happy Friday, you guys. Happy Fun Friday. And I love that you're all in more professional settings than my um, 
I'm like in my hotel room with a, you look great. A, a door here, trying not to get the doorknob here and a wall here where there's a, fr- we got to do what we got to do in these Looks moments. Tight. So you guys look great. You sound great. I'm pulling back. What's that thing that the, the third wall, your actors, you get it. Third wall, right? That's the third wall. I'm not the allowed fourth to talk wall. about the fourth. fourth wall. Sorry. <laughs> Why is it four and not thir- three? Because this is one, one two, two, three, three four. Oh, I get it. Yes. I am not a performer. I don't know these things. Helen Hong, Francesca Fiorentini, go check out their work. We'll put it in the comments. Love you. Happy Fun Friday. And I got to send some shout outs. Harvey K says he's on the Lower East Side. Greetings from the Lower East Side. I, we were talking about the Lower East Side earlier. Harvey, you got to tell us where on the Lower East Side. That's where I used to live. Um, Ian Kinzel, the better Star Wars comparison for Liz Cheney is Count Dooku. You guys are going to hate me because I'm not a Star Wars person, especially since the whole drama is more on par with prequels, the prequels anyway. Okay, I have to like look into this. And I'm really bad with anything sci-fi. I've seen Star Wars. I'm just, it's just not where my brain is. Uh, Kyler Rosado says, loving this comedian Femme Friday panel. Me too. And Prairie Fire Kowalski just sends his love. And so does Kevin Karen. Oh, I hope I get your name right. Cleon, can you do a pronunciation? I have to do this right. Cleon, I po- apologize if I'm not saying it right, but thank you, Kevin. And Pete from Oakland says, hey, Namiki, I've had this question for a while. Does your female viewership increase on Femme Fridays? I know this atmosphere is overwhelmingly male, so I wonder, much love and endless gratitude. You know what? I'm going to go check that out. I don't know off the top of my head. I'm going to say yes. I'm also going to say that our viewership increases over, like, overall on Fridays. It's a great day to talk about feminist issues. Uh, shout out. Shout outs to everyone in the live chats. Thank you guys so much. All of our moderators who are on YouTube and Twitch, building those algorithms, fighting off the trolls. We love you. And we will see you on Tuesday right here on Twitch, on YouTube at 3 p.m. And Dorsey laughed at me. So I think it had to do with my Star Wars reference or not. Maybe it was something. It was the fourth wall, I think. It was a few minutes ago. All right. I'm fourth wall. It was the fourth wall. On behalf of everybody at the show, Thank you. Uh, check out Mondays. Oh gosh, I have to do this now. Monday, we're on on Tuesday, but Monday at 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. is the new committee program, which they're busting their butts, creating this amazing program. I don't know if you saw the first one. If you haven't, go check it out. I was blown away. Uh, great production value, great conversation with thinkers and activists and strategists. They talk about everything um, from different international issues. Uh, you know, I think this week they're going to be talking about col- what's happening in Colombia. Horrifying. But they're because their background is working internationally as strategists, they're coming in from a strategy perspective. And then simultaneously, they will answer your campaign questions, which was really fun and great. I love that idea. So go check it out. Arun Chowdhury hosts it. Great show. Second show is this Monday at 3 p.m. Have a wonderful weekend. I'm going downstairs to go interview a badass, badass Puerto Rican uh, journalist. We'll talk soon.